Welcome to our podcast, The Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter, is the managing director of ARC, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, and she joins us from London. The ARC Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. First, though, Tara, welcome Good to you. Morning, How's Karen. London? It's another beautiful summer's day here um, at, on what should have been Wimbledon Wimbledon finals weekend, I think. Of course, because that must be strange. People donning on their shorts and, and heading back yes, to the gyms and, as well. Um, and my own uh, gym was always outside in the park and that has resumed. So, Well, you can tell we're speaking to each other at opposite ends of the um, corona spectrum, so to speak. Um because we had Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, speaking on national TV here in South Africa last night. Um, he's not toughened up the lockdown, but he's warned things are going to get an awful lot uh, tougher. There's 12,000 health workers we're short of. There's shortages of oxygen. Obviously, you know about the shortages of ventilators. So he's reimposed the ban on the sale and public consumption of alcohol. The logic there is to try and free up space in the hospitals, which are all already massively overcrowded by reducing alcohol-related incidents. Um, we've also got uh, a reimposition of a curfew, no movement between 9pm and 4am, um, and warnings that it really could be a- an awful lot tougher in the next few weeks. And certainly speaking to friends of mine who work as consultants in many of the public hospitals, they've said, actually, it's dire. It really is. In fact, let's take a listen to more of that, along with a roundup of some of the other news stories over the past week. As we head towards the peak of infections, it is vital that we do not burden our clinics and hospitals with alcohol-related injuries. The Prime Minister of the Ivory Coast has died just months before the election that could have thrust him into the presidency. After months of questioning the effectiveness of face coverings, refusing to wear one, and even mocking those that do, America's president was finally seen in public wearing a mask on a visit to a military hospital. Mandela, the daughter of former President Nelson Mandela and Ms. Wini Nomzamo Mandela, has died. 59-year-old Mandela passed away at a Johannesburg hospital early this morning. Zinzi is the daughter of former President Nelson Mandela and struggle stalwart Winnie Matigizela Mandela. At the time of her death, she was South Africa's ambassador to Denmark. So Tara, one bit of reporting that's been very interesting is uh, a Reuters report I know you picked up that was talking about, it was trying to give a sort of snapshot of COVID-19 across Africa and said one of the biggest difficulties is the reluctance to report among some countries. And it certainly reminds me of the old days of HIV uh, in this part of the world where governments and people were very, very worried about stigma and about reporting. And you get a real sense, Tara, of the World Health 
organizations' frustration at having to work with countries like, say, Tanzania and Burundi, only to find that their officials are either kicked out of the country or meetings about vitally important topics such as testing get cancelled at the last minute. And I know we've been talking about those countries a lot over the past few weeks, haven't we? Yes, we have. And I think the very interesting thing that the Reuters report uh, brings out is actually the scale of the escalation of the virus now. We're moving into uh, a high escalation that even though there isn't reporting of tests, what jumped out at me is that for the number of tests um, that are being done, even though they're appallingly low, the numbers of infections are very high. And I think it does, yes, point to the things that we have been pointing out in this podcast, A, that there isn't, uh, isn't sufficient testing, there isn't sufficient health infrastructure across the continent to be able to get a handle on it. Um, and obviously, that means health workers are working in the dark. And, and we've, 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 we've had health workers going on strike here in this part of the world. And although, you know, the, I guess the natural human in- instinct is to say, why? I mean, why are you going on strike now? But then you find out they have no PPE. Um, they have no support at all. They're seeing colleagues of theirs um, getting infected, some of them dying. A colleague of mine's just come back from the Eastern Cape. And she said, it's just catastrophic in the hospitals there. Yes. And we're seeing the same stories coming out of Egypt, for example, where against a very militaristic clampdown of the state, you are getting doctors being very brave um, and and actually criticizing government, even when they know that their lives are almost at risk for criticizing the government for not providing them with sufficient uh, protection. And it does seem that the world is divided into those who ignore this, who are ignoring this disease, and those who are seeing, who are actually seen to be doing something about it. And obviously, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda are all countries that have been, uh, that are actually taking very strict measures to try and prevent the spread of the disease, and Tanzania just ignoring it. Can I mention another story from this part of the world? Um, load shedding, it's back. Problems amongst other things with the brand new Madupi power station. Um, there's design and construction defects, including the removal of 32 kilometers of faulty tubing. I heard this fascinating interview during the week on the, on the radio with a local radio station. Obviously, the place has been riddled with corruption and ESCOM's new CEO, Andre de Reiter, warning that we can expect to see much, much more load shedding over the course of the next year as they try and correct some of those defects. Well, on the similar theme and slightly away from COVID is also an, an Angola story, which I think is is a very interesting one. And and the infamous uh, Isabel dos Santos, the daughter, uh, the billionaire daughter of the former president, Jose uh, uh, Eduardo dos Santos, has actually um, agreed, I think, last week that she will cooperate with the Angolan authorities um, who are in themselves claiming about 5 
five billion back from her uh, for alleged corruption. And if you remember, in the last podcast, we focused on Mauritius and why Mauritius is actually getting uh, is being blacklisted by the European Union. And one of the reasons we understand is that uh, the likes of Isabel dos Santos using it as a its services for financial and administrative services is one of the reasons that um, that they felt that the European Commission felt that their anti-money laundering processes weren't sufficient. Great example. Yeah, really good example. Very good example. And this comes on the back of a whole series of other investigations, which has led to Isabel dos Santos um, bank accounts being discovered in Portugal to have something like over 200 million euros in cash in them. And even earlier than that, the Lisbon court seized a company in which uh, Isabel dos Santos has a holding through allegedly corrupt uh, means. So very interesting turnabout. And what, But what really concerns me is whether this is the end of the road for Isabel dos Santos in actually uh, seeking to cut a deal with Uh, the Lorenzo government in Angola. And all eyes will be on Angola to see whether it actually drops its very tough prosecution of uh, of the former first family. And you've got a good story in Zimbabwe. Yes. And this is the uh, security wing of ZANU-PF. And we know that it's the security cluster that is largely in charge in in Zimbabwe at the moment. And they forced the closure of uh, in late June of the uh, Zimbabwe Stock Exchange. There is quite a lot of speculation is that um, is that they are actually targeting Old Mutual, which is the South African uh, financial services company. And the reason behind that is actually the Old Mutual share, because it is dual listed both in Zimbabwe and in South Africa, is the de facto, sets the de facto value value of the Zimbabwe dollar. And this is an incredibly blunt instrument, is just to get rid of the um, the alternative uh, exchange rate, if you like. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen in Johannesburg and Tara O'Connor in London. We're talking about recent stories in the news from across the African continent and continuing to touch on the impact of the coronavirus. The buzzword among business circles in this part of the world is the fourth industrial revolution. The term coined by the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab, which represents the merging of the physical, digital and biological worlds and includes the disruptive technological advances that propel us forward into the digital age. But the image also conjures up one of machines replacing human beings, which for much of sub-Saharan Africa, where young people make up the majority of the population and are already struggling to find jobs, well, it spells bad news, doesn't it? Well, one man who's been thinking about this demographic conundrum is Yanish Naidu, a digital manufacturing specialist from the South African-based manufacturer Gendermark. Yanish, welcome. Thank you very much. You're speaking to me from the Eastern Cape in South Africa. Yes, Port Elizabeth. In Port Elizabeth. Well, welcome. You are our first guest from PE, so um, good to have you onto the podcast. We've got me here in South Africa and you've got uh, Tara in London. Welcome, Yanesh. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Yanish, you work for a company which, put simply, manufactures assembly lines for the 
for the automotive industry. So you've got clients like Bentley in the UK and German car manufacturers among your clients, right? You move a lot of stuff around the world, to put it bluntly. So what's got you thinking about the fourth industrial revolution and the problem of joblessness? Um, it became quite evident that the fourth industrial revolution, um, as it's typically defined from a first world perspective, serves to meet the, the needs and the, the requirements from a first world manufacturing perspective. Um, and that is the, uh, the basis that the, the do more with less. Uh, so there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an increase in cost of manufacture from a first world perspective, which is why you see the movement of manufacturing uh, into sort of developing countries. Um, and one of the biggest drivers for that is the cost of labor in the first world, which is completely understandable. And I guess there's various reasons why the cost of labor has gone up. And so if you look at the basic underlying premise of the fourth industrial revolution is to, um, to try and solve that problem by doing more with less people. And from a first world perspective, that makes perfect sense. There's um, reducing populations. Um, so if you have a reduction, a reducing um, population, you obviously need to try and do more with less people. And being an African organization and understanding that requirement from a first world perspective uh, has forced us to ask the question, so what does that mean for Africa? Because if we adopt that exact same premise, do more with less people, uh, we'll have a huge problem in Africa, and especially sub-Saharan Africa, where there's a massive uh, bias towards young, uh, the, the younger population. So there's far more young people than there are older people. Whereas if you compare that to the first world, it's the opposite, where there's a much larger working class than there are young people. So uh, we need to, um, and what we believe we have to do is understand what these technologies are from, uh, that are defined as the fourth industrial revolution, but really use these technologies to understand and unlock the bottom half of our population pyramid um, and, and find solutions to, to bring that population into the, into the, into the economy uh, as opposed to take them out. Yeah, and I think uh, Uber is, is a great um, model to, uh, to, to look at. And if, if you look at what the, 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 the sort of technical model Uber runs on, it's, it's one where um, they've used other technologies to solve a, 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 a problem uh, of transport. So, for example, uh, they've used Amazon, they started out using Amazon Web Services as a, as a cloud computing service. They use the, uh, the, the vast amount of um, uh, people with smartphones, uh, 3.5 billion people with smartphones around the world. So, by creating an app, they get access to 3.5 billion people. Um, they've created an app for a driver, they've created an app for a, 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 a rider. Um, and basically all they've done is they've taken all of the existing technologies that are available, connected them together and solved the, a transport problem. Um, and essentially what they've become is they are network orchestrators. They haven't really developed any of those individual nodes themselves. They've just connected them together. So ultimately you're talking about something like the Uberization of business in the sachet economy where things are done in, in little pieces. How do you figure that working in practice? The one example that we are currently working on is we met a guy uh, in the free state. He was unfortunately retrenched uh, from a washing powder manufacturing organization. And 
he had been working for three, three and a half years in, in the factory and he had learned how to make washing powder. And so what he decided to do was to start making washing powder in the shack that he lived in. And so he would buy the, the raw materials and mix them together and uh, his customers would come with a, a, a big plastic bucket and he would fill in five or six kgs of washing powder. And, and so he, he started to grow a little business uh, around basically washing powder manufacturing. And so we, 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 we saw this and we thought this was pretty interesting. And we asked him, so what, what are your biggest challenges and what could we do to help you grow your business? And there were a couple of things that, that he said that he, 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 couldn't, um, he couldn't manage his supply and demand. So he didn't know how much his customers needed tomorrow. So he, could, he couldn't buy enough raw material. So he either bought too much or too little. Um, and the other, most, uh, the other important thing that uh, he needed help with was getting uh, SABS approved. So standard, he was producing, he needed to produce a product that was standardized and approved for sale. And so we thought, okay, maybe there's, there's an opportunity to, uh, to digitize his whole process. And so what we've set out to do um, is to create an interface for him where uh, we can build a little machine that monitors the process that he follows. So uh, it's got a scale, um, it has a little tipper, and the, the, the interface basically guides him with what he needs to do to build uh, or, or put together the uh, washing powder. On the other end of the world, uh, what we can now do is we can connect him to a washing powder expert. Um, and that expert can then create the, the perfect formulation for him uh, pass that through the system, and the system would then make sure he follows the, the right process in, in manufacturing this washing powder. So the system takes care of the quality control, exactly like how Uber has taken care of the quality control of, of driving. And then you build the this sort of ecosystem around him where uh, he, can ha- he can get his customers to pre-order washing powder through an app. Um, they can, the day before, say how much washing powder they want, and so he knows how much raw material to to purchase the day before and so he can balance out his supply and demand. Um, you can then build in the payment systems. You could link things like Impesa or whatever sort of payment system there might be in, in a particular country. And then you build a little model around uh, this particular individual that's now got a, a, a digital business that's making washing powder. And once that works, you can then replicate that in, into every single rural area or every single township there is in South Africa. And then you allow people to run their own little business dressmaking and uh, is a is a particular thing and I know that you described um, someone coming home and being able to drop off which I wonder if you wouldn't mind it as uh, describing that again so so yeah the the, the more detailed example of uh, let's say I, I wanted to to get a suit manufacturer or suit made up for myself assuming the network is already established I could go onto my phone. Um, and go on to the suit uh, making app. Um, and I could look at, uh, based on my location, uh, who uh, is uh, uh, closest between, uh, closest to my house and, and, and hopefully on my route between home and work, select a person based on their rating. So on, I, I only want to work on five stars. And obviously a person that is a five star rating charges more. And I could then uh, upload a picture to that particular individual and say, this is the kind of suit I'm looking for. Uh, give kind of general dimensions that the, the app might ask for. Um, the person can give me a, an estimated price, I don't, whatever that might be. I can agree, and then I can basically start the transaction. So the, I can check, uh, the system can check if I have enough money, I'm not some, some fraud, 
fraudulent person. Um, and then on sort of day two or three on my way to work, I can stop and get a, get a fitting and obviously then uh, get some feedback on, on how it's going through the app. And then on day four or five, on my way home, pick up the suit and, and I carry on and I can get, I will be rated on how well I do. And obviously, I will rate the dressmaker on how well I like the suit. I think you're onto something, Yanish. It sounds it sounds like a fantastic idea. I have to ask you: Do you think, given the experience of COVID nineteen, has it accelerated the possibility of the Uberization of businesses across Africa? Do you think? Absolutely. I think that that um, as lockdowns hit here, um, my my thoughts were: I wish we had hurried up with it. I wish we were a lot further along the line. Uh, because the timing is perfect to to really, uh, uh, I, I think the situation is forcing us to be more distributed. I mean, our organization, we have uh, over 40 mechanical designers that work for us. And typically, uh, we, we would have uh, all been in the same office at the same time, uh, working on, I don't know, seven or eight different projects at the, at, uh, simultaneously. Now we have 40, over 40 designers all working distributed. From home, um, I don't know if any of you guys have been to to India. Um, India is a, 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 a great example of a distributed manufacturing economy. So, uh, we were doing a project for one of our customers, uh, VW in India, and we every day when we drove from the hospital to the factory, um, uh, and in particularly when we drove home from the factory uh, back home, which was it was dark. And you drive past these little um, cutouts in the wall, hundreds and hundreds of little cutouts in the wall, and you'd see through those cutouts little sparks. And I'd always wondered what, what was going on in there. And there were people machining and people welding and people assembling things all in a distributed way. And they somehow are able to connect and work together um, and at the end produce a, a, a big machine, but all in a distributed way. And if it was digitized, it'll be far more efficient. Quality control will be much uh, much more um, effective. Um, I think the, the developed economy is ripe and it's the, it's the solution for our joblessness. Can you envisage this as actually bringing a glo- the global market together, sort of customers in the Western world and suppliers from the emerging world? I think we need to be realistic about it as well. I think that it's certainly a, a cost of the product element. So I think they're trying to, to Uberize washing powder manufacturing in Germany. I'm not sure if it makes, makes absolute sense because of the cost of what it would take to do it uh, in somebody's garage and the kind of income they would be willing to uh, accept. True. Yes. I was thinking more of the suit maker uh, and the penchant uh, for, you know, for you know, the interest in, in, in sort of originally made stuff. Um, as people tire of supermarket um, or heavily manufactured, low-cost uh, output. Yeah. So, so I think the one the one key differentiator that can separate the distributed economy from the centralized one is that um, the the guy in his shack making washing powder can customize the washing powder for me. The same with the suit. If I want uh, pink lining on the inside of my suit. Um, I'd be willing to pay a little bit more for that. So it's not just a case of making cheap product. Uh, it's a case of making this uh, industrialized, uh, I mean, customized, individualized product, which is a big opportunity from a distributed perspective. And maybe to, to answer your question might be why a suit 
could be made in South Africa and sent to Australia. Very, very interesting, Yanish. It's quite inspiring. And it's even inspiring to people who are not sort of technologically minded like myself. But, you know, I've lived in East Africa um, Tara's lived in West Africa and both of us have seen sort of the informal sectors thriving in a way that perhaps we don't see quite so much here in South Africa. It's a very different kind of vibe. It's a very different kind of uh, business ethic. But um, I think certainly people are being exposed more and more to it as they have to apps on their phones and they're able to, to customize their orders. So yeah, really interesting. But we, we cannot let you go Yanish, without the golden question that we ask everybody who appears on the Ark Insider. Um, we've obviously been struggling with COVID-19. Um, I know in your particular instance, you've had members of your company who've been stranded in other parts of the world. So I'm just wondering what has been the most um, enduring feature of this pandemic for you in terms of how you've had to adjust to the way you work or, or just how you see the world? I think the key thing that that's uh, stood out for me is um, a lot of the things that we thought we couldn't do, we actually can do. Um, and, and, and the one real example that stands out for me is um, in the middle of February, we had a team of uh, 13 guys in China installing uh, one, of our, one of the biggest projects we've ever done, a big differential assembly line. Um, and that consists of, of huge machinery, conveyor systems and robots and a number of other complicated machines. Um, and we were kind of 50% through the mechanical installation um, and the coronavirus was uh, sort of taking hold of the China, uh, China at that point in time. Um, and then there was a, a, an, an announcement in China that said every, everyone needs to leave within 24 hours uh, because they're shutting down. And so we had to basically rush our team literally from the shop floor to the airport out of China back to South Africa. And that was in the middle of February. Um, and then obviously, as, as everybody knows, the sort of pandemic uh, took over in the different locations um, and, as, uh, and as such, the different lockdowns happened. And then China started opening up again. Uh, and as China started opening up, South Africa started locking down. And so our customer in China uh, was uh, asked us a, a pretty fair question. Okay, so now we're up and running again. When are you going to come and finish uh, commissioning our production line. And we couldn't travel into China and we couldn't travel out of South Africa, but the demand from the customer was there. And so what we started out doing was remote commissioning the line with a team of uh, Chinese um, engineers. And we thought this is impossible. There's no way that we'd be able to commission these complicated machines remotely with a team of Chinese um, engineers over WeChat. Um, and that, in my mind, before lockdown was impossible. And somehow our team did it. I still don't know how, um, but we've managed to commission that line uh, to the point where our customers now able to build parts in it without us even being there. That's fantastic. That's a great success story. Yanish Naidi, thank you. Thank you very much, Yanish. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces a daily chronology of events as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.